0: How are you doing? It is almost Christmas time and this is a Christmas time offer for you for being a loyal listener. Join us on Patreon and you get 15% discount for the annual subscription. You're going to get first dibs on tickets for Dolky, for Kilconomics, and for live podcasts. You're going to be part of our book club, which I'm launching in January you're going to get access to my monetary economics course, we one I gave in Trinity, and you're going to get a sort of a substack backdrop of all sorts of articles that go into making these podcasts. So join us, Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Now on Christmas Day, and you get 15% discount for the annual subscription. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. I am looking out the window from the 31st floor of the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas at this bizarre, bizarre city, which by any environmental reasons (laughs) should not exist. Should not exist. I'm looking out at a golf course. And there's no evidence of water anywhere. No, for, for miles and miles. The Hoover Dam is quite far away. John, I'm in Vegas. I'm at the U2 gig. I've just gone. To, well, I was at it last night. What strange, strange place, Las Vegas? Yeah, it's like, it's like America on steroids. It's yeah, it's, it's like you just got America and you just fed it with more American isms. It's it's an extraordinary place. Yeah, it
1: epitomizes everything that's kind of good and exciting about America, but also everything that's really, really bad, really bad about America. I've never been to Vegas, I have to say. Uh, I've been to its little brother, which is Reno, Nevada, and Lake Tahoe, which is kind of the same kind of deal, but on a very, very small scale. I mean,
0: this is, if you have ever read Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, it is, it's kind of off the scale, debauchery, mentalness, Last night, I went to see the U2 gig in The Sphere. Again, when you talk about off the scale, it's kind of otherworldly. The Sphere is this really extraordinary structure. And the visuals, the visuals. I mean, you've seen U2, I've seen U2. They're always a brilliant live band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are one of the best. Uh, And then you add on top of that this place and the sphere and the extraordinary visuals.
1: Did it take anything from the, the songs? Because I'm dying to see that show. I'd love to see it. But I wonder, is it such an extravaganza that it takes away
0: from that? Well, no, it's interesting you say that. I mean, because obviously what they're doing this tour is Actung Baby, which I mm. believe is, you know, I think it's their best album. I think it's outstanding. remember it's when like I first heard it, I thought, wow. You know, and I think I was reading that Bono said in Surrender in his book that the fly, which was the single they released for Aksong Baby, the first single, was the sound of you 2 taking a chainsaw to the Joshua tree which I thought was a very, very good way of putting it, right? See, I love the Joshua Tree.
1: I absolutely love the Joshua Tree.
0: Well, we're in in Joshua Tree country. I mean, that was the whole, you know, the um, the, the U2's love affair with America in the 80s, and it was Martin Luther King, and it was B.B. King, and it was the Joshua Tree, and it was all that sort of slightly evangelical, almost messianic America, Mm, right? mm. And then they go to Berlin, and they tear it all down, and they create this acting baby sound. But I think... The, the songs were enhanced by the spectacle. But you're absolutely right. The songs are so good. I mean, the back catalogue is so good. They've just got banger oh, after banger after banger after absolutely. banger. I mean, it's, 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 it's extraordinary. So it's, a, it's an hour and a half of just, as you said, they are the live performers. I mean, you know, I told you years ago, the first time I saw them, I went with my cousin Cahal to. Uh,
1: don't you dare say I was in the Dandelion Market.
0: No, I was in Leakslip. Do you remember that? No, no, we were too young for the Dandelion Market for that. But, but everybody says that. Yeah, yeah. You're either in the Dandelion Market or your Alpha or your granddad was in the GPO in The Rising. You know, It was one of those two things. Yeah. In fact, Bono was in the GPO in The Rising. No, but I remember going to see them. And I told my mother I was going to a soccer blitz. And myself and my cousin Cahal went to see the police in Leakslip, I think in yeah, the summer yeah, of yeah. 1980. And you two were down the bill. They were must have been very, very young, and they were like fifth on the bill, right? Mm. And they stole the show. They were just better yeah. than everybody else, and they only had about five songs, but they were yeah. better. You, you just knew these guys have something special, and whatever they have, it's an energy, it's an attitude, it's Bono's extraordinary ability as a frontman. You know, oh, he's, you, he's see- a
1: showman. He was born a showman. I always thought I've seen you two loads and loads of times. But I think my favorite gig at theirs was slain in oh, whatever year it was. in the
0: 2002, wasn't it?
1: Yes. The, yeah. the black and white gig, as I call it. And it was just stripped down, rock and roll gig. And I just thought they were fantastic.
0: Well, we should, we should both come here and do a pod from here, John, right? You and me on the strip. <laughs> Absolutely. A I'm there, man. The I'm there. But uh, this, this gig, I think, is coming back in January and they're playing January and February. So it's really well worth seeing. It's it's a sort of next level of entertainment, you know. So when does a gig stop being a gig and become a show? A Show, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's I think it's basically, you know, it is a show. It's it's Las Vegas, and it's tailor made yeah. for Las Vegas. And the Sphere is the venue of the future. So there's no improvisation at all, then. It's know, just- there's quite a lot. There's quite a lot, obviously. But I mean, what I've heard is a, a huge amount of artists. Uh, I heard that Axel Rose was there last night. Oh, All right. Of artists are going to see, okay, how do we do this?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can do imagine, we figure actually, this out? You know? Yeah, but it's yeah.
0: it's well worth it. And then, of course, there was the usual Irish carry on. It's just, Paddy just can't go to sleep, no matter how jet lagged you are, <laughs> you know? So, so it was like, I oh, will have another one of those margaritas, two yeah, more, yeah. more margaritas. And you get into, you just get into America. So let's just say the head is banging today.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, it I, it I was is like, banging. To, to quote Hunter S. Thompson, because I was. <laughs> <laughs> Look, no, no. but there's a great quote when he goes, we had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, and a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, and also a quart of tequila, a quart of rum, a case of Budweiser, a pint of raw ether, and two
0: dozen ammels. That is Hunter S. Thompson. And that's probably about you. That's the fear and loathing. The fear and loathing. Well, it wasn't that bad, but it wasn't it wasn't far <laughs> away. So now but I mean the other thing is for the podcast, John. Yeah. You're in Trump country here, right? And you yeah. really, really get the feeling. There's also what you would love as well is the National rodeo championships are on at the, at the same time, right? So it's full of it's full of cowboys and cowgirls walking around yeah, with yeah. big stetsons and the whole That's thing, right? Flood territory. That yeah, you no, know, it's it's great, it's great. In actual fact: I'm going to go to the rodeo tomorrow. I've got. I've oh, never yeah. been to a rodeo. I'm going to go to the rodeo tomorrow. So I'm going to get the whole American experience, John. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, But excellent. And then I'll be and then I'll be home next week. Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. But you're in deep, deep Trump country here. And you get the, when you're chatting to people here, they're mainly Republican voters. You know, the the, the punters turning up at the rodeo. <laughs> yeah, you'll get some pretty unique views there, all right. Well, well, do you know what I think? It's it's a very interesting week. We, we, we'll probably go into it a little bit more in a week or so's time, but it's a very, very interesting week for Ukraine, right? Because it's okay. quite clear that the Americans have, the Republicans and the Americans, particularly the right wing of the Republicans, have made Ukraine almost like a wedge issue in the culture war. That they don't want to support Ukraine. That they're dragging their heels when it comes to Ukraine and they don't seem to get it. And this is all playing into Trump's idea of the United States can simply go it alone. And, you know, the the weird thing about the States is it can go it alone in the sense that it's the only major power, the only major power that has got two oceans separating it from the rest of the world. It is the biggest food producer in the world. It has the biggest military in the world. It has the biggest Navy in the world. It's a nuclear power. It now is energy self-sufficient because of fracking. You may or may not like it, but that's where it's at. Yeah, yeah, sure. The United States can just close its doors if it wants. It really can say to the rest of the world, you know what, off you go, sort yourselves out. We do not want to be either the arsenal of democracy are the global policemen anymore. And if it does that, that's, of course, what you get the sense, you know, with Ukraine that the Republicans are either fed up of Ukraine or they don't see the significance of Ukraine and the Democrats are completely split now because of Israel, because the Democrats are split on Israel, because the progressives are naturally saying to Biden, you can't keep supporting Netanyahu. So what you get is you get this cocktail, if you had said to us this time last year, like Christmas of last year, what was likely to happen, right? This is just mm. before, remember, I went to I went to Kiev in January of last year, yeah. right? And there was a sense that the West was united, that Europe was united, that America was behind them, that the Russians had actually miscalculated, which I still think they did. But if you're looking, Christmas from the Kremlin this year looks very different to Christmas from the Kremlin last year. And that's key.
1: Yes, it does. And the thing about it is that it seems that Putin has, you know, really got into these Trump supporters. Yeah, completely. There, there's a kind of an admiration, whether it's support or not, there's a kind of an admiration for Putin, which is really it's, bizarre.
0: Yeah, the, the, which is really, really strange. It's really, really strange. And so you have this at the same time. So geopolitically, America seems incredibly divided. Of course, you've got the election coming up. Yeah. And Trump is going to, Trump is, it looks, at least the polls suggest that uh He's quite odds-on favorite now. I mean, mm. Biden's poll ratings are very, very, are, is atrocious. Now, what that means for the economy is weird because you also have, this week, Jay Powell gave the financial markets the biggest presence they've had in the last four years because he basically said, look, inflation is done. We've achieved what we want to achieve. We are going to cut interest rates. And we're going to cut them quite quickly. And, of course, stocks and bonds and everything. And you really get the feel in the United States that everything is built on credit here. Like, the whole thing is built on credit, yeah. you know? And and when interest rates are, are are 5%, it's a sort of a slightly downbeat United States. If interest rates go back to 2% or 3%, because inflation is now down at 2 or 3%, this place is going to boom again. And so what
1: does that mean for Europe? Does that mean that America is going to, economically, it's going to pull away from Europe and from the Western world, actually? <laughs>
0: Well I mean the thing is you have you have the you have the the trumpian isolationist trend. Now the interesting thing remember we talked about Benjamin Franklin last last week yes, right? Yes we did. Thomas Jefferson right one of the other founding fathers he was also part of this strain in the American political culture which is isolationist. Almost a sort of utopian almost sort of a and like Jefferson had this sort of rural, idyll idea that America could pull away and could be this sort of shining city on the hill and create this new republic, all that sort of stuff. And that's a very, very deep strain within the Republican Party in the United States. Yeah. And of course, Alexander Hamilton was the opposite. He was saying, no, 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 we've got to become a global superpower, et cetera, et cetera. And that has always been a big battle in the States. And of course, Trump is very much of the view that, you know, the United States can go it alone. So what it means for Europe are two things. One is that Trump although he doesn't like Netanyahu is the most anti-palestinian president the Americans have ever had, right? He doesn't like Netanyahu personally, but he yeah. doesn't he's he's totally and utterly in the pocket of the Israeli right wing. So just imagine America doesn't support Ukraine but supports Israel. What that Mm. does to Europe is that means that Europe has to take a stand on both these issues, right? It means that Europe has to re-energize its military spending. It has to hugely invest in military technology. And it's a totally different... If if America disappears as the global policeman, just for, you know, in the last 40 years, Europeans have never, ever thought about their security. And in the last 40 years, Europeans have always never really taken a side on the Middle East. They've always been, you know, a bit of this and a bit of that. That could all change completely. And you get the sense also when you're in the States, because I spent last week in LA, you know, Europe is very, very far away. You're looking at a new civilization almost emerging. Mm. And, and, And the West Coast civilization in America looks to China, it looks to Asia. Although it feels European, it increasingly feels like something very, very new and you can understand why they're saying look man you know the old country back there get your act right together
1: so could this be a big boon for the uk for instance
0: no i don't think so i think i think the uk i don't i think the yanks regard the uk as the crown as far as i can see right you right. know it's basically it's basically you know it's it, it it's it's an interesting place to go to buy souvenirs yeah yeah and listen to music and things so what i would just say i think that europe the eu nato all those issues Are up for discussion again, which is phenomenal. And had you said that this time last year, people said, no, no, no. On the contrary, the Western liberal tradition is now well-financed, well-resourced, intellectually by far and away the most persuasive ideology out there. It doesn't look like that anymore. And that's only in one year. So that's, wow. these are my thoughts. But what we'll do is actually, John, next week, we'll have another podcast from the States on Thursday from LA because LA has been intriguing me and I'm going to think a little bit more about it. But right now from Vegas, what you get is a sense of, well, this is obviously Sodom and Gomorrah here, right? Okay, yeah. that's, that's you get that, right? But you, you do get the sense that America would be quite happy to just pull away from the rest of the world. It's kind of scary. It is really scary. And it's actually yeah. the first time since the Second World War. If you think about it, it's the first time since Woodrow Wilson in the First World War, committed the United States to the League of Nations. And that's where he said, look, we are going to be an international player. So that's 100 years. So we've had 100 years of American hegemony. Really, really have. Mm. And 100 years, almost to the year, we're now seeing the United States saying, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. We're only 5% of the world's population, maybe 4% of the world's population. We don't have the resources. To be the policeman anymore, and frankly, we don't want to be the policeman anymore, and that's a very appealing message to American voters, particularly if the economy starts to do well. Because they'll just say, "Look, things are going well here. Why should we bother?" And that is that is something that I don't think Europeans have got their head around at all. Certainly, well, it, we haven't in well, Ireland
1: either. You, Europeans are the are they going to be the big losers in
0: all of this? Yeah, look, what are our, our Europe will actually begin to look like the continent that it could be. Which is a much more muscular, much more self aware contact. I mean at the moment, pull up big boy
1: pants kind of thing.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So that, these are these are thoughts, thoughts that I'm having here as I am musing on uh, whether I'll have on your tequila and masculine and the lot. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, actually I do want to also talk to you, John, about something I saw two days ago. I went to from the bizarre to the ridiculous. I, I, I went from the from the Huntington Museum in Pasadena, in California, where I saw one of the last of the 48 surviving Gutenberg Bibles. You know, this is wow. a obsession of mine, right? Well, hang on a second. So that's going from
1: Hunter S. Thompson to the Huntington Museum. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about that in just a minute. Grant.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mac, you've left Las Vegas, You're now in LA. <laughs> Chanting my inner Nicolas Cage leaving Las Vegas. Did you ever see that movie? Yes, uh, it's I'm did. now in LA. Miserable movie. Pas- yeah, I'm in Pasadena, actually, just outside LA. I'm at an extraordinary place called the Huntington Museum and Gardens, right? Mm. Huntington was one of these American industrialists who had that sort of Renaissance man thing going on in the last century, the turn of the last century. And he set about buying up and collecting very, very rare books. One of them is a book that I, you know, I'm fascinated with, which is the Gutenberg Bible. Yeah, I, I was amazed to hear that it was there, actually. It seems kind of out of place there almost. Well, it is, and it's, it's, again, it's funny, I was the only person in the bloody museum. (laughs) (laughs) There it is, probably the most significant piece of technology (laughs) that influenced the world in enormous ways, and it's sitting there on its Sweeney Todd in this library, and people are just passing it by, as if, you know. Really. Yeah, and it's it's like it's what, like the book of Kells. Is it not kind of presented in a, it is in a big presented, case no, and all yeah, that kind no, of stuff? No, but, yeah, but it's competing with Starbucks and things like that, you know? It's, like, it's, <laughs> it's America. But what was fascinating about it though is when you when you look at the Gutenberg Bible and you see it, so there's 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 basically 48 copies left in the world, and there's only six copies on parchment, okay, on animal right. hide right? And this is one of the last six on Animal Hide, right? And when you look at the Gutenberg Bible, and this is the fascinating thing, it is so beautiful, right? It is so aesthetically beautiful. And the reason is that Gutenberg was a jeweler, right? He was... He, he was a designer before he was an engineer. So people always talk about, you know, the Gutenberg Bible and how it completely changed printing and how it completely changed reading and how it completely changed information. And it was really the democratization of knowledge. And that is a fantastic inflection point. And the world changed thereafter, right? But, Kind of appropriate during California, the kind of home of the iPhone and the Tesla and all these things, the home of Apple, because right. what you see is that Gutenberg was like Steve Jobs; he was a designer first.
1: Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In, in
0: the same way as everyone talks about Jobs, the technologist, but it's Jobs and Johnny Ive at Apple came up with the designs, and it was they wanted things to not only be technologically interesting and pathbreaking, but they also wanted things to be beautiful. You know, yeah. so the iPhone yeah, yeah. is a beautiful looking thing. It's a yeah, beautiful absolutely. product, you know? And I remember, do you remember Johnny Ive was uh, at the Doki Book Festival a couple of years ago?
1: Yes, yeah,
0: and, yeah. And his very, very first thing, and actually it was Bono was interviewing him, and his very, yeah. very first thing. It's Stephen was Fry. He, there, it was Stephen it, it was, Fry and was a great Johnny one, yeah. Ive. It was an amazing one. But what really intrigued me about Johnny Ive is he looked really grumpy at the start. And Bono said to him, you all right, Johnny? And this is the main designer of Apple. And he's an English guy. And he goes, no, bono, I'm not all right. Because you see that lectern, it's really ugly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it was really getting on his nerves. So the lectern that we thought, we thought was lovely, right? It was a glass. It away. God, he said, please get it away. I can't look <laughs> yeah, at that. It's ugly, remember right? remember that. I remember that. I was like, Jesus, where's this <laughs> chap going to go? But there was the eye of the designer. You know, the person who looks at design. And when you look at the Gutenberg Bible, what you see is that Gutenberg himself was a designer. And he wanted it to be not only an extraordinary piece of technology, but he wanted it to be beautiful. And Mm. he wanted it to appeal to aesthetics. And he wanted it to appeal to the people who would ultimately buy the Bible, which were the church. So he wanted to appeal to their vanity and the church's obsession with beauty and particularly the Renaissance church, the pre-Renaissance church, you know that 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 whole idea of beauty and wealth and 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 when you look at the bible you think wow and then you think the world changed after this book and the reason it changed is because, because information became more democratic you had a explosion in literacy mm. people wanting to learn and if you think about you know skills you know that idea of the meta skill the meta skill is the skill that enables other things to happen yeah. and if you think the the meta skill of the medieval age was reading, so that enabled other things to happen because then certainly people started to think about the Enlightenment and think about science and think about well this God thing I'm not too sure about that and the fascinating thing and we we'll come up to with spread this,
1: the word of God as well
0: spread the word of God and of course what Martin Luther understood was that you only needed one person to be able to read to spread the word of God because that one person would be the town crier and if you labelled and repackaged Protestantism in pamphlets, which was Martin Luther's little in- innovation, you could get one guy telling the rest of the world about things. And they also had these extraordinary sort of vulgar, to use that expression, depictions of priests fornicating and all sorts of things yeah. on the printed page, you know. So it was it was a whole package. But, but what fascinates me is that reading is the meta skill. And if you look now at the new... Gutenberg Bible, John, it's AI. This is the new Gutenberg Bible. This right. is the new revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. This is the technology that will change the way the world works. And then you think if if reading was the meta skill that enabled people to actually use printing to its most destructive and innovative way, what is the meta skill that will allow people to use AI. And that brings us to, I think, a very interesting statistic last week, John, that came out, which was the OECD PISA scores on education, right? What is PISA? PISA means Programme for International Student Assessment. It's P-I-S-A, right? Right. So basically, OECD takes 15-year-olds all around the world in every single country and it gauges their ability in maths, in science, and in reading. Right. And it's a crucial indicator of how well or badly the education system is going. Now, fascinatingly, here in America, what you see is those grades are falling off the cliff across the United States. Yeah. So it's always the case in America, which is when they are good, they are the best at everything, right? But on average, on average, what you find is underinvestment in education is having a profound impact impact on the intelligence and the education level of these people. Ireland, on the other hand, did extremely well. So it took 5,569 kids in 170 Irish schools, right? And overall, amongst 15-year-olds, Irish children score amongst the highest in reading, second in the world, up from eighth in 2018, were above average in maths, were 11th in the world, up from 21st in 2018 and in science we're 12th in the world up from 22nd so what you see quite a jump
1: actually it's a massive jump yeah
0: and i don't think it's been talked about enough that what you have is this complete change in the performance of the education system in ireland of the basic secondary school and the basic primary school and is it because you know dare i say maybe immigrant kids are coming in and they're they're working harder because that's something you see? Or okay. is it because the education system is just working better? Is it because the teachers are working better? Something is Something is happening. There's been quite a few
1: changes in, the, in how education is delivered. And, you know, what year did you say this was? So this is from 2018 to now. So it's only five years, right? But, but there was the pandemic in the middle of that, which disrupted I schooling. So, so, I wonder how that sense. kind of impacted on it. Actually, it's, it's interesting, Mark, that so happened to be the Trump era as well, or partly the Trump era. And Trump appointed you one Betsy DeVos as the education who dismantled the United States education system. And I wonder how much of that has had an impact on these numbers, especially when they're talking about isolationism
0: as well. I think it has to be. I mean, Trump is, Trump, look, the very interesting thing about trying to understand Trump voters in the United States, somebody said, and I can't remember who it was, that Trump voters do not, dis- you know, the, the sort of left behinds, right? Yeah. They don't despise the rich. They despise the professional classes. They mm. despise the educated, right? The people who walk around with their degrees and their parchments and the elitism of all that. So it is all in the mix, John. You're absolutely right. I mean, this is not, you can't see this in isolation. This isn't something that just happened overnight. American kids didn't just become less academic. Something is happening in the United States. And it's all part of this political, economic, and social cocktail that is isolationist, that is anti-elite, that is anti the status quo, that basically wants to tear things down. And you remember Trump said I love the uneducated. That was yes. one of his things, yes, right? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And it and it and it chimed with lots of people. Lots of people said, "Yeah, fuck it." Yeah. I'm sick of being talked down to by people. I'm sick of being patronized. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Well, well, what it seems is that, in contrast to the United States, because I'm here, where all those indicators are falling off the cliff. Right. The Americans mm. are are underperforming in maths, they're underperforming in science, they're underperforming in reading, and that's average kid, Right. Yeah. What you see in Ireland is the opposite is happening, that the education system has delivered an amazing result over the last couple of, well, the last four or five years. And again, you know, sometimes we complain about Ireland and the transport system doesn't work and the housing is is screwed and we want to change. But actually, Mm. at a very fundamental level, this is an extraordinary signal for the future of the country because what it means is that the meta skill to deal with technological change is always education, right? Yeah. Have you got the intellectual wherewithal? Have you got the educational wherewithal to deal with a changing world? And what it looks like, if you look at those scores, that if you take AI as being as dramatic as the Gutenberg Bible on how it's going to disrupt the world, and then you think, okay, well, what equips you to deal with this disruption is education. What you see in Ireland is that the kids are actually much better educated now than they were five years ago relative to the rest of the world. Yeah. And therefore much better qualified or at least better equipped to deal with this changing world. Yeah. And the, the, the fascinating thing is nobody has any idea how the world is going to change as a result of AI. But I'll just leave you one thought, right? The Gutenberg Bible was commissioned by the Catholic Church. Without the Catholic Church Gutenberg had no client, right? They were the main buyers of Bibles, right? Fascinatingly, the very institution that commissioned the Gutenberg Bible was almost destroyed by the Gutenberg Bible because the Gutenberg Bible facilitated Martin Luther. So the Gutenberg Bible is commissioned in 1453 by the Archbishop of Mainz in Germany right and Mainz in Germany at the time was like the silicon valley of the time it was on the river rhine beside the river it was the mosel valley connecting the rhine and frankfurt the necker it was it was it was a hub of activity right a little bit like a little bit like silicon valley right mm. so what you have is the church commissions the bible nobody in the church would have ever ever thought that commissioning this printing press was going to lead to the destruction of the church itself and the Thirty Years' War in Germany, which was the most vicious sectarian war that Europe had ever seen. Yeah. So when you think about AI, and I know you're a, you're an AI skeptic, and you're, you're you're not so much you're a skeptic, but you think, hold on a second, you think what forces are going to be unleashed by this technology at a time, to tie it all in, John, where the United States may be geopolitically saying, we're going to disengage from the world, where Mr. Putin is sitting in the Kremlin thinking, you know what, this hasn't been a bad 12 months for me, and where Israel is actively, actively destroying Gaza in front of our very eyes. You put that into the mix, and you see what Gutenberg's Bible did to the medieval age, and you think, what the hell is AI going to do to ours?